You're listening to Random Fit with hosts Wendy Batts and Ken Miller, winner of a Gold Markham Award for Digital Media. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Random Fit. I am Wendy Batts here with my co-host and friend, Mr. Ken Miller. Ken, how are you today? Awesome, Wendy. How you doing? You're looking good. Well, why? Thanks. You know, what? What? How did? What better way to start my day than that, right? <laughs> Um, well, today I'm really excited. I know I say this every single weekend or week. I shouldn't even say weekend. I'm just looking forward to what's ahead, I guess. But um, this week we have a very special guest. We have, he's really a friend, but definitely a colleague and someone that I admire a lot in our industry. Dr. Scott Cheatham will be joining us today talking about fitness and COVID. Um, and when we had Dr. Uh, Cheatham on our Optima sessions, we he did a great presentation regarding COVID and we got a lot of really positive feedback. And so we wanted to invite him to the show so we could kind of dive a little bit deeper. Um, and those of you guys that don't know Dr. Scott, um, Scott is a board certified orthopedic physical therapist. He is a professor and associate chair for the Department of Kinesiology at California State University, Dominguez Hills. He owns his own business, Sports Medicine Alliance. And then of course he's on our NASM advisory board. So I wanna go ahead and bring him in, Ken. Let's bring Dr. Scott in this morning. Let's, let's see the guy. All right. The man. The man of the hour. <laughs> Thank you, Wendy and Ken. I appreciate being here and uh, uh, being able to uh, talk with you guys. My first time on the podcast here. And thank, thank you for the NASM family for listening. I appreciate it. Yes. Such a good topic today, Scott. So, you know, um, you know, I know Ken and I, we have a bunch of questions to ask you and, uh, Ken, do you want to start us off or do you want me to? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, you know, as as my training facility gets busier and busier. So as the months have gone by since late last year, people have gotten more confidence in coming back. Trainers are training more often. Um, but, you know, we are getting that clientele that is coming in that, you know, was afraid of of being amongst other people in and in working post COVID, you know, so the confidence as far as being, you know, familiar with, with, uh, you know, COVID and what it's done to them for the last, you know, two years, you know, putting on the COVID-15 as they call it versus the COVID-19. Right. But, um, can you explain to us just, just to start off with some fundamental information, what is, what is COVID and, and, and what is it, what is it doing to the body? I mean, if you can summarize that within the length of the podcast, but you know, there's because you know, as people come in, they they come in with different interpretations of what the information is about what it is that they went through. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's a great question. Let me try to decipher. Okay. So, so COVID COVID nineteen is actually the clinical signs and symptoms of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So we we know that SARS came out several years ago, um, but it was contained. And so that was SARS-1. Well, the, the next version of it or the next mutation came out called SARS-CoV-2. And so when the uh, research experts around the world started to see uh, this SARS-CoV-2 manifest and spread, um, it was really kind of named and 
officially discovered by the World Health Organization and CDC from the United States and other medical experts in uh, 2019. And so that's when they they named it COVID-19. So, so COVID is just really a short name and for 2019, but that really represents the signs and symptoms that is manifested when the virus is in a human. So that's, that's where it has it. Now, what's interesting is when we look at the pandemic history, we've had basically five um, pandemics um, uh, to the human race ever since uh, 1918, the Spanish flu. And um, all the other four pandemics were from the influenza A virus. And I think that that's an important point because uh, that's where that's what's led to our annual boosters, right, of the influenza shot. So when we so around September, October, when we start seeing all the commercials saying, hey, you need to get your flu shot this year, that was really a product of the four pandemics that were the influenza. So the SARS-CoV-2 was a new kind of RNA-based virus, which we know that RNA is a messenger between DNA and protein synthesis. And so <clears throat> it, it was new to the human race. And that's why it, it kind of spread into a pandemic, because obviously these viruses need a host or a human. And so we started to see all these variants or these mutations spread across the world. And so as the virus was jumping from continent to continent, that's when we were getting all these, these different variations. And so over the last two plus years, we've been kind of fighting it with the vaccines and also the herd immunity and coming up with therapeutics on how to treat it. So, so that's kind of, and so as we kind of fast forward till today, this is where uh, COVID-19 it seems like it's weakened because the, the mutations have, have finally weakened because um, we're, a lot of the experts are thinking that there's so much um, herd immunity throughout the world that the virus, you know, the, the virus um, structure is starting to break down. And so it's starting to weaken. So we're starting to see, especially with this Omicron, um, that it is more of a, uh, it's more of a weaker virus and it's, it's manifesting itself and presenting itself almost like a, a weaker flu. Okay. So that's kind of the latest. Um, hopefully can that answer your. <laughs> no, you did. You, you definitely did because the, the, the next question on that is as we talk to Dr. Scott here on random fit with both Wendy Batts and I, Ken Miller, we are exploring the, the, uh, the component of fitness that we just can't get away from, which is now COVID-19 and working out in the post COVID pandemic. Um, but thanks for that clarification, um, Dr. Scott, on, on what COVID-19 is. And, you know, because I've I've got clients that, you know, especially last year or when when it was first coming through, um, you know, they'll they'll have that that symptom of tasting things just not the same. Like uh, we've I've had friends that lost taste. And, you know, and that's not something that just lasted 10 days. It's something that I've, I've got a buddy who it lasted for six months where you could taste, but things didn't taste the same. Almost his symptom was that it tasted, uh, things tasted tinny, uh, if I can find a word for it. But 
what I'm what I want to know right now is when it comes to, as you said, the the symptoms actually, you know, getting less and less and less as, as time comes by. But what about those that had symptoms that lasted longer than a couple weeks? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So believe it or not, um, in the early, like early 2020, they were uh, the COVID-19 literature and the experts were calling it the long haulers, right? So, but it, they changed the name because I think now that we're, as a society, we're getting a little bit more politically correct. We don't want to label somebody as a long hauler. So they're, so the new term is individuals with long COVID. And so there's a, there's a small cohort of individuals who, uh, who do get COVID-19 they recover, but then they have this lingering cluster of symptoms and signs, right? Um, uh, side effects or issues or complications that last, um, at least in my experience, up to about three months or even more. Um, when we look at the COVID-19 literature, uh, study after study, as they've progressed from 2019 to 2020, even up until this month, uh, talk about that there's more than 50 or more long-term complications with it. But it's important to understand is, is that if you have a, if you have a client who got ventilated and they're in the hospital, they're going to have longer term, possibly permanent complications because somehow they might've been in that at-risk group and COVID-19 has really uh, done a number on their body. So, 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 so currently we start seeing that that people have these cluster of kind of random symptoms, and um, the new term would be uh, individuals with long COVID. Hmm. So, with you uh, kind of piggybacking off of that, um, Scott, can you kind of go into a little more information? Like, what are what are the primary long term effects of somebody when you're talking about you know you've had COVID or these that were um, affected? more so than others. Um, can you kind of talk us a little bit, like th kind of talk through that? Yeah, I think, I think it's important to, to realize that, that there's a, that there's a primary cluster of general symptoms, such as, um, someone who had had COVID, um, they're tired and they're fatigued. Um, one, another thing they call it is post exertional malaise, where they'll do some activities of daily living, Maybe they'll even go to Costco and try to, you know, fight through the crowds at Costco and they get exhausted from that or they try to exercise. Um, uh, the fever is still present. And also, too, there's a new manifestation that has been showing up more and more. And that is cognitive problems that, that these individuals are getting. And a lot of the literature is starting to call it almost like the COVID fog where they're having difficulty focusing um, sleeping, they might have what's called photophobia, which is sensitivity to light. And so we're starting to see these manifestations of that. And then from there, there's a subclass of people who are more active where they're starting to get, they're starting to still have the respiratory, which is the original, obviously SARS, but also they're getting, um, there's some possible heart inflammatory issues, uh, myocarditis and stuff that, um, is starting to show up with some active individuals and we can talk about that later. So, so we have our primary cluster, which is, um, really identified by the COVID fog. 
and then we have a lot of secondary um, symptoms. And I think it's important, at least it, I always have to remember, is that COVID-19 is a systemic uh, virus. And originally we thought it was just focused on the respiratory tract, but we're starting to see more and more that it affects people differently, but it seems to have a widespread effect on all the major physiological systems of the body. So it's an interesting, it's interesting how it's really transpired and how we learn more and more from it. Because I've had, I've had patients that have the simple COVID fog. I've had patients that have, have had rashes. They've had some really weird manifestations from it. And it's just, it's an interesting it's, it's, it's interesting to see how it kind of goes from there. That's, 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 oh, that's very interesting. Okay, sorry, Wendy, but you've got a practice. You work with athletes, um, Scott. And so how do you how do you figure out? Is, do you have a screening process to figure because it is systemic if someone's experiencing a cognitive issue, cognitive issue or if it's a respiratory issue? How do you figure out? Because I'm sure the your protocol then, if I could say that, would be different if it was somebody that was feeling that more of the cognitive um, experience versus somebody that's feeling that malaise or that level of fatigue uh, when it comes to movement. Yeah. So, so first, first and foremost, I, I make sure I stay within my scope of practice. I think that's, that's, that's a huge point. And then I, I'm usually working at the time with a medical doctor that they've seen. So I'll collaborate with the medical professional on what they're seeing. And then, um, and then from there, we're dealing with their long-term consequences, let's say, or complications. So if it's a respiratory, typically I'm dealing with some type of respiratory specialist where, you know, they may control the the individual by using an RPE. I've had medical doctors tell me about the RPE or even using a heart rate um, throughout the time to kind of um, go from there. If, if it's, I, I've had had two athletes in my practice that have had the heart muscle inflammation, that is a completely different protocol. They're actually off for a couple months because it's such a dangerous manifestation and complication. So, so yeah, so I tried, I'm usually working with a medical professional and then from there, I will scaffold my questions and my monitoring based on what they're, what they're doing. So for example, if someone has the cognitive issues like the fog, um, <clears throat> obviously staying evidence based is huge because the research is constantly being produced with this, but I'm usually working with the primary doctor and we're, we're actually using more concussion protocols. We're actually treat, treating them. And what's interesting, especially with like the cock, with this fog that they're having is that um, probably, cause I've seen about 20 plus patients uh, this last year who have had long COVID symptoms. Uh, if they do cardiovascular exercise, they feel like that their, their fogginess clears up. So it's an interesting thing. So we're still learning as we go, but I'm making sure that I work with a medical professional, right? That someone who's, you know, I go to the next pay grade and um, I just make sure that, that it's there, but also too, based on what, what their symptoms are having, 
we're still monitoring. Um, some of the basic screenings that we're doing is we obviously, I obviously have my COVID screen, but along the way, I'm using, um, you know, I'm using the pulse oximeter. Um, everyone remembers these, right? So I'll kind of bring that out right here where we get it on the finger. So we're, we're, we're monitoring their oxygen level and their heart rate all the way through. And I find that that's a good, good way to, as we try to exercise them and stuff. And I'm sure we'll get into that here in a little bit. Interesting. So Scott, I actually have two questions. So I'm going to kind of piggyback on what you just said, but then I also have something that's completely different based on like our, my scope of practice for, um, for sure. But the first question is, is based on, you know, the medical, um, you know, when you're talking to these other professionals that are dealing with this, do they ever see that fog like fading and not just doing cardio where it gets better, but then it obviously is coming back. I mean, do they see that this is something that will eventually go away or do they think it's going to be here to stay? And then the second part of that question would be as a fitness professional, is there something specific that if I know someone has had COVID and they've had some of these, um, these effects, meaning the brain fog, or you know that they had some issues with their heart and the respiratory system, are there certain things that I should really consider before they actually start exercising with me? I mean, along without saying the medical clearance, because we know that, but once they get cleared to exercise as a fitness professional, staying within my scope, what would you recommend me making sure I do before? And then definitely during, if I don't have access to a pulsometer or something along those lines. Okay. All right. So your first question, we'll, we'll address that is, is that we're still learning a lot about the, the, the virus. So, but we're seeing, I'm seeing at least in my, with my patients, it, the complications tend to dissipate um, at about three months post infection. So we're, we're looking at three months from the full recovery. You know how they say it's a 10 days. So they're actually, they're actually, um, testing negative and then we're seeing this kind of like this approximate three month fade um, from there. Now as far as as far as the scope of practice, I I do agree that the fitness professional needs to be well aware of you know safety for these individuals because again we're we're still learning about it. And in my humble opinion, it's a it's a systemic issue. It's, it affects people differently. So a lot of the key things that's been cited in the, in the research evidence, as well as with professionals is, um, you know, the, the biggest tool would be using the OPT model and really slowly progressing them through beginning with phase one, all the way through the OPT. That to me, that's the first thing that should be considered with the fitness professional. The second thing is, is using the RPE scale concurrently through their exercise program so that, um, you know, if you, if you are, you know, taking them through, let's say they're in phase two and you are taking them through some supersets, you should be checking with them concurrently on their RPE number. And a lot of times when I work with my clients, I'll obviously review with them the first session what the RPE scale is. I use zero to 10, so it's much easier. 
And then I may simply say, like, if I was working out with Ken, okay, Ken, you know, what, you know, in, even in the middle of the exercise, zero to 10, how are you doing? If you start seeing them fatigued or whatever. So I think concurrently using the RPE and then also too, believe it or not, these, these pulse oximeters, they're pretty accurate. Um, and you can get them on Amazon for pretty cheap. I think like nine or $10, they're very accessible. And the reason I like this is, is that um, if the fitness professional establishes, you know, their, their clients, you know, max heart rate, and they can use whatever the carbonin or whatever formula they want to establish their zones, they obviously should begin in zone one and then progress all the way through. But, but with the pulse oximeter, you can concurrently monitor them and also to see if there's any spikes in their heart rate and kind of correlate that as what the client is feeling. So I like to use the RPE with these little devices or even a subjective. And then also too, I'm always observing the respirations, right? Cause you know, we know our regular respirations are between 12 and 20 rest, but we know it's gonna increase. But if they start, you know, breathing heavy and they're getting fatigued and they're not feeling good, you know that you've overstressed them at that point. So a lot of it is kind of using the RPE, using some of your biometric devices to kind of slowly progress them and then monitor and start figuring out what they can and cannot do. And so I, and I think that that's still within the fitness professional scope of practice. Um, but um, again, you know, they, they should be getting, uh, they should have gotten the clearance, like you mentioned, Wendy, you know, gotten the clearance and then you're moving from there. So hopefully that, that answered your question. Yeah. So actually as a follow-up to that, Scott, and, and um, today on Random Fit, Dr. Scott Cheatham is joining Ken Miller and I on Random Fit talking about fitness after COVID. And Scott, you, you gave us some, some good information, but, but to kind of dive in even a little bit deeper, when would you say for, for those that are not savvy? So again, you know, we know that some of the, our audience are, are, you know, our weekend warriors and, and just fitness enthusiasts. So RPE is the rate of perceived exertion. So from one to 10, how do you feel? So if someone's doing this on their own and they're not working with a trainer and they start to feel at this number, then you would say maybe level down a little bit or take a, a take a rest. And then if they are thinking about, you know, investing in some kind of um, pulseometer or something along those lines, can you tell us like, when would be the shut it down, you really need to, um, you know, like think about this because you want your oxygen level to be, I mean, obviously a hundred percent, but when, when is it kind of red line? Like you need to take, take a break. Okay. Great. Great question. So, um, yeah, so the rate of perceived, perceived exertion, as we know, it was originally called the Borg scale and it, it's really a subjective, which is the person's measure of how much they're exerting through exercise. And it can be used with aerobic activity or anaerobic activity. So weightlifting, it could be used for a lot of things. We try to, when we're first beginning uh, exercise with a client who's, who's, uh, you know, who's had long COVID, we usually like to use a cutoff of four. So that means if they go four or above, they're going to take a break and we're going to slowly kind of modulate their activity from there. Uh, I, that's what I've been uh, used to. 
And then um, even with my young athletes who have had it, I try to keep it, you know, generally around a four, maybe below a five. And that's more of like a moderate level activity because we want to, we want to use the overload theory a little bit and we want them to adapt and we want the benefits of exercise as we know to, to help, but their, their whole, their whole, their whole system, which is their whole body may not be used to that load yet because it's still recovering from fighting the virus. So we have to remember that there's going to be a balance between the exercise. So, so sometimes I may start off with, you know, maybe 30 minutes of rolling and stretching. So I might do the corrector exercise continuum first and then begin with maybe 30 minutes of exercise. And then I'm using the RPE with the cutoff of four or five. And then at the same time, <clears throat> you know, um, in between, let's say their sets, I might just put this on their index finger to measure. And clinically, we the acceptable values for the oxygen level is that you want 95% or higher, that means that the oxygen molecules are getting into the lungs, they're being diffused by the alveoli, right? And so you have that good respiration and that good diffusion. So the respiratory system's working. And so that's what we're really looking for is that 95% or higher. And so if, if we start, if a client um, or even the fitness professionals who are listening to this podcast, if you're exercising yourself and we notice that the numbers start dropping below 95, well, people start feeling a little lightheaded because they're not getting oxygen to their brain. They start feeling a lot of fatigue. So if, if, they, if you have a client and you start noticing that, that the numbers are dropping and they're feeling maybe some chest tightness, they're not feeling very good, then you should probably stop the exercise and then contact the medical professional and say, hey, look, you know, um, I was just monitoring because we're, we're not diagnosing. You're just monitoring simply, you know, the standard numbers that are out there. And again, these have been around since since the beginning of COVID. We've always used these. So I think the fitness professional can safely call the medical person and say, hey, they, you know, as we did low level exercise at a RPE of four, I noticed that they're 92 or 93 and they weren't feeling good. So that, that, that could be one example of that. Awesome. So Dr. Scott, if we're talking about best practices, then, I mean, as, as we're treading on new and sometimes unfamiliar situations, like what you're talking about with the cognitive, as well as the um, circulatory and, and the cardiorespiratory uh, situations would would you say then that that would be a safe investment if we're looking at best practices as a fitness professional and you don't know what you're going to come across when you know whether you're getting a new client um post post covid or if you have an existing client that say contracted covid and then now they're on their way back would that be just i mean as you said it's it's not a it's not a very big investment relatively speaking but would that be something that you would incorporate, you know, just like you'd have your tape measure, you have your, uh, you have your, you know, two by four and you have your assessment process, but a pulse oximeter would be uh, something to, to have in your, in your top desk yeah. drawer. I, and that's what I did, right? I pulled it up. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My kid comes home, my high school kid, you guys get it. 
<laughs> yeah, make sure he's okay. But um, anyways, yeah, I think I think it's great to have, um, you know, also too, a lot of our clients have these new biometric devices, right? These smart watches that are smarter than we are, <laughs> right? You know, and, and they have all these devices. So if, if they can monitor heart rate, but the good thing about the pulse oximeter is even, even, you know, years ago, I did some validation studies on this, on these devices, they're pretty darn accurate. And it, as far as I'm concerned, it's a lot easier to monitor your client with this versus trying to, you know, take the radial pulse on them and do it manually, which is a skill we should all have. But I, I think it's a great investment because um, you're not diagnosing with it. You're just monitoring standardized numbers. And it, it makes sense that, you know, as we exercise, as our, you know, as our respiratory rate and our heart rate increases and the RPE increases, we know that they all linear, linearly, you know, go up as we exercise. So we should see a nice increase. And so with the pulse oximeter, you can you can test them within a couple seconds real time and it's pretty darn accurate. So I think it's a great investment for any professional to have. And also it, it's good just to monitor your clients every so often, especially if you're taking them to the next OPT level. And for example, if they're moving from level one to level two, well, we've moved from stabilization, slower tempos, all of a sudden to supersets. That's a huge jump for some of our clients. So even with a healthy client, monitoring them with the pulse oximeter, it, especially if they're feeling very tired, they're labored, it's just a great way of you documenting and making sure that they're staying within those, those preset zones that you did during the assessment. And so that's something just to kind of consider. And, and, you know, for those that are joining us on Random Fit today with myself, Wendy Bax and Ken Miller, we're talking it with Dr. Scott Cheatham, um, who has a plethora of things going on in the world. But one of the things about you, Scott, that I love is that you are a researcher. You read the research. You you always, always um, you know, fill us with a bunch of knowledge. And I guess one of my things that one of my last questions that I personally have for you is like, based on the research that you're reading, what are the effects that the exercise can have with people that have had COVID or are the long haulers? Yeah, I, this is an area that, that's been interesting um, because the, the, there's actually a couple things that I want to kind of bring up, but I won't, be, I won't be too spicy and dicey for a random fit here, but Believe oh, you can bring it on, Scott. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, honestly, let's let's talk about the fitness elephant in the room where gyms were closed down. Does everyone remember that? I'm sure Ken and Ken and I were both affected. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. In your practice. Well, to believe it or not, when you scour the research from the onset of early 2020 when they shut down the world till now, there hasn't been any really big super spreader event that has occurred in a gym. It's very interesting, right? So on that note, the, a lot of people went to their home-based exercises. Like you can see, I'm one of the people behind you. You can see behind me, Saka, I got my, I got my, my, my <laughs> home bike, right? So everyone, I know, right? You know, they love me. They're like, thanks, Scott. You know, so we all got stuck at home and becoming more sedentary. And so what had happened was the, you know, once the gym shut down and everyone was kind of 
feeling, you, you know, this, this shell shock with this new pandemic and stuff. Um, a lot of people stayed active and a lot of people didn't. And so when we're looking at towards, you know, 2020 into 2021, um, there's been several large sample studies, cross-sectional studies that looked at like 40,000 or more individuals. And they looked at the correlation between exercise and COVID-19 complications. So we can see that there's, there's those two. So one notable study, uh, the author is Salas et al. Uh, it actually came out of Kaiser Permanente here in California. Um, it's interesting that it was published in 21, late 21, and they looked at over 48,000 individuals within their database from 2020 through 2021. And as we all know too, that's when a lot of the COVID transmission was spreading across the United States and we were really shut down. So they found that among the 48,000 cross-sectional and all the data. Now, if, if anyone knows of Kaiser Permanente, they're an HMO, but they do a ton of data collection. I've done some research with them and they're, you know, in my humble opinion, from a researcher, their databases are very well evidence-based and they document a lot. So this study came out in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And what they said was, is that individuals who were more active and they did the minimum 150 minutes per week had less long-term symptoms than people who were more sedentary. And so I think right there, we started seeing the first wave of these big cross-sectional studies coming out and saying, hey, look, people who exercised may, had, may have developed some type of better resistance to these long-term complications. And so looking at that from a personal standpoint, and, you know, and, and also I think you, you all mentioned that I have my, my clinical practice where I do physical therapy and strength and conditioning and sports training. Well, when I looked at the study by Salas, I'm like, oh my gosh, it makes sense because exercise had some type help, possibly some type of resistance. But then why do several of my patients over and over again, who've had long COVID, if they do cardio, they feel better. So it's an interesting thing that we don't know about yet. I don't know. I mean, I'm still learning it, but we always go back to those tenets of physical fitness and what we are always promoting through NASM, right? We're trying to keep people moving. So Salus was one of the big studies that came out. And so that spread like COVID across the world, showing everybody that exercise was important. Well, during that time, there were several other studies that came out. Some of the notable ones was a study out of, uh, a study out of Korea where, you know, South Korea, where Lee et al. looked at another large sample size of 76,000 Korean adults. And they found the same thing. The adults that exercised, you know, they, they kind of use the general guidelines of the 150 minutes, you know, your basic guidelines, but those in general, those who are more active had less long-term symptoms and they also suggested within their discussion that there was a subgroup who possibly, we got to be careful, had some immunity. 
really interesting. It was really interesting study when you when you look at it from a nerdy perspective, because we've always thought for years that when you exercise and remember how we, we always talk about sweating it out and getting the immune system and stuff. These are some cross-sectional studies that are at least suggesting, hey, look, you know, if you exercise, you might you might be more durable from these viruses and possibly there might be a subgroup that has some immunity properties. I'm not sure. So it's just, it was really interesting. And then we also saw a smaller sample out of Brazil, uh, De Souza in 21, they did the same thing. So we have basically three continents. And so the Brazilian study basically confirmed the same thing that if, if people were active and they used the 150 minutes a week cutoff, again, they had reductions like in 30 and 40% compared to people who were sedentary. So I think it's I think it's interesting because I think a lot of the fitness professionals who read these studies were like, we told you so, we told you so, and why did you close us down? You know, so so I think it's interesting for the fitness professional who we've always kind of empirically known that exercise has so many benefits for the body. And then we're screaming and saying, hey, wait a second, why are you closing us down when people are where there's, you know, because a lot of the gyms as you know, they spent thousands of dollars on equipment, right? You know, clean air, open doors, you know, so I, I think that there's a lot to it when it comes to what Ursa's done and all these companies that say, hey, wait a second, we understand that, you know, that being in a closed environment, obviously is going to be a risk if there's a bunch of people breathing or coughing. So we get that, but, you know, the correlation between exercise and less complications and a small sample of possible immunity. To me, that's exciting. To me, that's saying, okay, exercise is good. And then in my clinical practice, which is very weak, this is totally not non-scientific. My patients feel better when they exercise more. Yeah. So I have no idea. It's just, you know, so I, so with my patients, I got to practice within my scope, but I need to do whatever I can to get them to feel better. And it's even non-scientific. I'm like, you know what? Exercise as much as you can because it makes them feel better. Well, Scott, to piggyback off of that too, and just, you know, what I found interesting, I mean, obviously with the exercise and, you know, the research that's done on COVID and mental health, I mean, obviously, you know, we've we've seen, unfortunately, more, more cases of depression and other issues because people were not able to interact and get out and do the things that that mentally made them feel good about themselves. But but it's interesting that you say that because being in Georgia, we were the first state to open the doors. And we I was very, very fortunate because where I worked, we really didn't shut down or we didn't shut down for a long period of time. I think we were closed for about a month. And, you know, looking at our membership and we were actually just talking about this recently, something to think about and the importance of all this was we were still getting together. We were still opening the gyms. I mean, granted, we wiped everything down. It was constantly being sanitized. We did follow a lot of protocols. But a majority of our members, if not almost all of our members, if they did get COVID or something, they were back at it and they are not long haulers, but we also kept them moving throughout the pandemic. See, and that's great. And and on the same way, I don't know about you, but I clean my hands so much, I don't think I have um, fingerprints. In I know. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, like we bleached them, you know, oh, you know. <laughs> and then they told us that don't worry about the surfaces and we're like, no, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, 
no and and i stayed and i stayed open and it was interesting because in you know i think at least in california things crashed like in mid-march so i was at the university like on a friday and then monday the world shut down but i still had to see post-surgical patients at the time so you know here i am walking with like an n95 and i'm basically telling telling the patient hey if i turn into a zombie right you know can you call my wife or whatever <laughs> you know you know and we're you know because we didn't know right we didn't know we thought everything's going to end so so you're right i mean a lot of the research is suggesting that 20 percent or more of, of individuals who do get COVID or the long haul symptoms they have a lot of psychological psychosocial issues so i think mental health is a huge thing and you're right you know um here we go we go from a very active society where we're interacting with people we're such a very mobile society to isolation and immobility that's going to cause a decline in function all the way through including our psyche and our emotional state so i totally agree with that so scott you, you we talked about those that exercise they got better they had better resistance and like you're saying there's evidence of some some immunity properties but what about that person that they weren't an exerciser and and again those those studies that you mentioned from um brazil south korea the us if somebody was not getting those 150 minutes in it you know, how do we how do we progress them? And, and I know you talked about the OPT model for those that are not familiar with the National Academy of Sports Medicine and their training model, which is the optimum performance training model. You brought it up a couple of times. How do you grade somebody or how do you get somebody to go through that model if if they haven't been an exerciser and, you know, they are they are post covid um, and, and they and they want to have a you know, they want to be able to tolerate it should that experience happen to them again? Yeah, um, great question. So I think the first thing that I always do within my practices is part of the screening process, or if I'm working with a, a healthcare provider, I need to make sure that that the, that the client um, does not have or has existing comorbid conditions like hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, you know, and I think um, hopefully I think everybody who's listening to this podcast is pretty familiar with, you know, a lot of the comorbid conditions that can make the that can actually magnify the complications of COVID-19. So some of the, the main comorbid conditions, if we want to review, would be hypertension, diabetes, someone who's had a stroke, um, current cancer, obesity, kidney or liver disease, um, sickle cell disease, chronic lung disease, and then heart disease. So, so those are the main comorbid conditions that they've seen that individuals who do have it seem to have greater complications from COVID-19 because there are their immune systems already supposedly compromised with these comorbid conditions. So, so I recommend the first, the first step is if you do get a client who, let's say a new client, or they're working with somebody who's had COVID-19 and they have identifiable comorbidities, you gotta go back to the healthcare provider and you need to work with them on that, especially things with like diabetes and hypertension um, and also some of the obesities. And we're talking like a BMI 30 or over, okay? Sometimes even 25. 
So we're, we're looking at these, these, these kind of these comorbid risk factors that the person can um, definitely have stronger complications. So again, some of that is still unknown, Ken, where, where you know, we take somebody who might be more sedentary or whatever, but those people have to have a slower start than somebody who's been working out and someone who's clear, you know, you clear them medically of these comorbid conditions. So, so the, so I mentioned before the optimum performance training model. And I, I like that because phase one is pretty, is pretty straightforward. You work on a lot of stability, proprioception, you're starting to build, rebuild that muscular endurance, because as I mentioned before, in my opinion, COVID-19 is a systemic disease um, or, you know, or a systemic virus. And the, the issue is, is that a lot of times people who are convalescing after the virus and they have those long COVID symptoms, they may not be that active. So they're all the physiological systems of their body kind of become deconditioned. So you have to start off somewhere that's logical. And we know over the years, the OPT model is very evidence-based. It's very straightforward. And so you have to start somewhere. And that's where I use that in my practice, where I'm really trying to prepare the person and get them more fit. And for phase two, three, four, and five, as we, as we progress them, but based on their goals. So I also think too, that every healthcare and fitness professional should do a very comprehensive assessment from the intake and interview to the screening all the way through your movement tests, um, your strength tests and your performance tests. So I think it's very important for everyone to do a complete because you have to get a complete picture of these clients and not assume anything. You can't just say, oh, how are you feeling? Because I've had, I've had some clients who want to push themselves because they're tired of feeling kind of like crap, you know, and I've had them there. I've had their oxygen levels drop in the middle of our phase two supersets. It's pretty obvious. And we've had to sit down and rest and I had to monitor them. So, so you never know with, with this virus, if in the middle of exercise, they're just going to kind of bonk, right? They're just going to bonk and just kind of get super fatigued. So we can't assume that. So if you start off at a reasonable level one and your cardiorespiratory is kind of like a zone one, yeah, do it for a couple of weeks. Just kind of prepare them, get them comfortable with working out again. Because remember, in my opinion, sometimes with some individuals, 80% of it's up here, 20% of it's physical, right? So a lot of these individuals that we have to remember, and I want to I want to kind of do a public service announcement on this one, PSA, is that they're going to be scared. They had COVID. They, 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 these long haul symptoms really kind of messed them up a little bit up here. They're afraid. They don't know why they can't remember things. They don't know why they cannot focus. I have college kids who dropped out of school for the semester because they can't focus and they can't study. So again, these, these symptoms manifest themselves, but we cannot take it for granted because fitness professionals are healthcare professionals. And so there it's along the continuum. So all those fit pros out there, I think you got to dig a little bit deeper in that initial assessment and don't be afraid to ask somebody who's had COVID-19 
how are you feeling? Right? Because that's sometimes the best is how are you feeling? You know, um, do you feel comfortable with working out? And during the workout, while you're getting the RPE, why not stop and check with them? How are you feeling right now? You know, are you feeling okay? Do you feel good? You know, so so then if you're doing if you're doing those kind of those those checks, they're gonna build the confidence. So you're gonna have to build confidence and you're gonna have to get them comfortable. So that's where the, in my opinion, the phase one simple, let's get it going for a few weeks, get them comfortable comes into play. But as you know, as you're presenting your assessment findings and as you're going over their SMART goals, as you're completing the first, the first session, you should, you know, in my humble opinion, be very clear with your communication and effective and say, hey, look, you know, I want to spend the next two weeks getting you used to exercise. I want you to build your confidence and feel comfortable. So we're just going to take it slow. Yep. Then build up from there. But you yeah. need to communicate effectively that first session. I think it's huge. Yeah. No, that's 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 gigantic um, with, with any client. But again, especially with those that are post-COVID, trying to get back into fitness and for all the benefits that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But I'll say this guy, hey, I learned a ton. I mean, you just you confirmed some things, but you also enlightened uh, quite a bit, especially when it comes to the, the systemic um, approach to, you know, somebody coming back post COVID. It's not just a physical, but there is a mental uh, cognitive standpoint to it. But uh, hey, Scott, always great working with you, seeing seeing you and 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 listen to you speak your words of wisdom when it comes to. <laughs> Uh, you know, anything that we've had a chance to work together with. So thanks for being with us today on, on Random Fit, Scott. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Have a great one. All right. So on behalf of Wendy Bats and I here on Random Fit, thank you so much for listening to us on this episode and talking about fitness after COVID. So if you liked what you listened to today, like, follow, subscribe, share, and please always, always, always let us know if there's anything you want us to talk about here on Random fit. So until next time, take care and be well.